How do you normally start cooking? Olive oil, right? Well, I have great news for you. This podcast is also brought to you by California Olive Ranch, expertly crafted extra version olive oil. Go to CaliforniaOliveRanch.com and enter the promo code CHICKENS10, that's one word, CHICKENS10, to receive 10% off your entire first purchase. The offer is available through December 31st. California Olive Ranch, discovery starts in the bottle. Let's start the show. Pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hello there, my chickens and dishes. How are you? Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, or David Guimarães Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And as always, just in case, if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has this exceptional name. I'm originally from Portugal, and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if we've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our family sitting around the table, and even what's the best breakfast ever. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and all the platforms you have access to. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes or the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. I hope you enjoy listening to every episode and don't forget I'm Portuguese. So if you don't understand something, just Google it. My guest today loves everything related with wine. She has covered food, beverage, travel, and culture for Bloomberg, BBC, Bon Appetit, Travel and Leisure, and others. A graduate of the International Culinary Center, she has worked as a recipe developer, an editor at Google, tasting table, a bartender, and a line cook. Former editor-in-chief of Vine Pair, she joined Wine Enthusiast Magazine 2019, where she's the associate manager editor for digital media. Emily Saladino, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. How are you doing today? Pretty good, thank you. How about you? You know, I'm hanging in there. I'm good. Uh, <laughs> the best we can, right? Yes, exactly. Two important questions. Have you ever been to Portugal? I have. I have been to Portugal about two years ago. I went with my partner um, just for vacation. I had to speak at a conference in London and then he flew out to Lisbon and I came down to Lisbon and we traveled around a bit from there. And it's a wonderful country, right? It was incredible. We've actually been, I mean, scheming is probably the wrong word, but trying to find a way, like, do we have any Portuguese heritage? Could we live there? We really, really fell in love with it. Do you know any Portuguese words? Um, I can say hola and obrigado, and that's it. <laughs> at, least, at least you're very polite, you know, the beginning and the end of a conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm just thanking people left and right. <laughs> Because it's your industry and it's a very important question, do you know how to say wine in Portuguese? What is it, vino? Vino. Sorry, I'm probably giving it a Spanish accent. Sorry, vino. Yeah, okay. I'm, used, <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm used to that. It's fine. No, <laughs> so, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so we start right away. Can you really tell thing about a wine by sniffing the cork? That is a controversial issue. It's so hilarious. I I almost think of it as like 
when you're getting into wine, there's all of these stages, right? Like I remember when I was first working in wine, I felt really self-conscious to swirl the glass the way you, you should in order to release all of the aromas, but it, it just seemed so affected to me. And I was like, no, I'll just drink it. But in reality, as I got more and more into wine, like it does, it actually does change the way it smells and the way it smells is so important and can be really cool. And so for me, the, the cork sniffing is like the next step in that. Um, um, where, you know, you, I think actually first you swirl, you get used to swirling and sniffing. Spitting is something that took me a long time to be comfortable doing like in front of an audience. And then sniffing the cork, it does, it actually can be meaningful. Um, I think the problem is like swirling, some people are just kind of doing it because they think they should. You can legit get a lot of really cool odors when you smell the cork of wine. You can also smell cork. Like it's, you know, <laughs> there's possibilities on both sides. Um, but yeah, I, I think that you, it can be very meaningful. It's not necessary to do. It's not necessary to swirl. You know, you should just drink whatever, however you like and whatever you like. That's sort of my overall beverage philosophy. <laughs> How old were you the first time you tried wine? Oh my gosh. I have no idea. That's a great question. Um, Three, four I years know, old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the casual. bottle. Yeah. Sunday brunch. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh -huh. um, no, that's a good question. My, my family is not a big family of wine drinkers, so I didn't like grow up with it. Um, I do, I do have like relatives who drank with dinner, um, but I didn't when I was growing up. I'm trying to think it's a good question. I mean, probably a teenager. Um, legally uh, <laughs> i like to pause just in case family members are listening to this <laughs> emily she was 21 when she had her first i was birthday. exactly it was on my 21st birthday exactly. <laughs> i mean you were in the cooking world let's put it like that although cooking and wine are very you know close together did you have a particular moment that propelled you into wine you know, that's a great question as well. There wasn't one thing. Sometimes I'll talk to folks who work in wine editorial and they'll be like, you know, I was at this chateau and the winemaker came out and he had prepared rabbit and we paired, you know, I actually have never had that like one crystallizing experience. But because I did, as you said, because I worked in food for so long. And I am so, so, so interested and engaged in culinary culture and the history and sort of socioeconomic implications of food and beverage. It was a really natural progression. Um, I, I, I will always love both. Like I, to me, food and beverage are so linked. Um, and so I, it just kind of always complemented what I was doing. When I was in culinary school, we had to do, I think there was like one or two classes about beverage, right? Like compared to how much time you spend on food, small, but really meaningful for me. Um, and so just kind of thinking about wine through a culinary lens was sort of my entryway. Not a chateau, unfortunately. It's like less cinematic, but, uh, be a, but a real. more interesting story if you were at a chateau, but yes. Right, uh, I know. <laughs> right. In culinary school, we have... I did five years of culinary school and every year we have the wine class and it was mm -hmm. my worst grade from the five years. I, I always, really? yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a wine for, for folks listening. I, I don't drink wine. And I mean, I can drink a glass of whites every, you know, nine months, but <laughs> I, I always suffered and it was, you know, and my teacher, he was like the sommelier of the year in Portugal and he was trying to teach us. And most of the cl my class friends, they could actually, you know, the whole taste and smell and, you know, the body of the wine. And I could not, it was very, very difficult for me. I, I, I barely passed that class. It was just the minimum required, which is 10 in Portugal. It's zero out of 20, the grade. So mm. 10 you pass. And I had a 
a very small tan, but I pass. But I, I always struggle with that. What are the biggest mistakes people tend to make when ordering and drinking wine? I think the biggest mistake is worrying that you're making a mistake. That is my point of view. You know, if you want to drink a big, heavy California Cabernet with filet of sole, like, do you? You know, I think um, traditionally the idea is always that, like, you would have you know, what, what grows together goes together is the, the cute little phrase. And, you know, you would want to have, I'm like, I, I personally prefer that, but I think the biggest mistake is people feel very inhibited by wine. It can be very intimidating. And a lot of that is, um, quite honestly, I think it's the fault of, of the wine industry. I think we, we can be, um, a bit, more exclusive than benefits us or our potential consumers. Um, and so like that is something that for me in in the business, I, I work really hard, like sort of a course correction, I guess. I work very hard to counteract um, because particularly in the US, not that many people do have long wine histories in their family. Um, not that many of us grew up going to chateaus. I'm sure some did. Um, but I, I, I can I tell the chateau part is really, really, there's something about that chateau Emily, that's, you keep bringing it up. Okay. I know, I know. No, it's just funny. Whenever you, I don't know, for me, at least, whenever I read or listen to interviews with folks in the wine business, they always have these very glamorous origin stories. I think I'm just jealous. Um, <laughs> and so... But that to me is like the number one mistake to avoid is just like be confident in yourself. And I also think just be comfortable asking questions. You know, I, I, I'm also a really big beer drinker and I love craft beer. And, you know, if I go to a brewery, I notice people, I don't see people being nearly as inhibited asking questions of um, the, the beer tender as they are of the sommelier in a restaurant. And that's something I would love to correct, I guess, you know, to, to evolve is the right word um, people, as a people society. People do make that as beer being something more casual, right? With your friends or, uh, or you are watching sports or whatever it is. And right. wine, we have the tendency to paired wine in a moment a little more interesting, more formal. So maybe that's right. Why yeah. yeah. And I mean, to that end, I think that the, the meteoric rise of rosé in the U.S. in the past, I'm going to say 10 years, has been really valuable. And I think the wine industry is would be wise to kind of look at that as a cool, cool potential for creating casual wine drinking. As you said, like, you know, you, people think of, oh, I'm, I'm watching a, a game or whatever, and I'm going to drink a beer. But then serious craft beer drinkers, they're sitting there and they're doing the equivalent of smelling the cork. I guess some beers have cork, so they are, you know, yeah. <laughs> they're doing uh -huh. that equivalent. Um, and so by by the same token, and I, I welcome that. And by the same token, I, I invite people who are serious, quote unquote, self-identified serious wine drinkers um, to also really welcome folks who just want to open a really cold rosé next to a pool. Like that's also cool. That's bringing wine into their lives. Which country has the most underrated wine? Oh, ooh, good question. Actually, I'm not just saying this, <laughs> I'm not just saying this given the current audience. I love Portuguese wine for what gets imported to the US. To me is we get really good Portuguese. There's better there, but we get really great. And I feel like it doesn't get nearly as much like lip service as some other um, old world regions. I also really dig, um, I like a lot of Austrian wines, Alsatian, like I like, you could probably tell I'm a big acid person. I like things that are very acidic. And so I think like Alsace isn't a country obviously, but the 
the wines from that region tend to be overshadowed in the U.S. Um, by other parts of France and Germany. And I, that to me is kind of, that's where I think there's a lot of potential. Um, but I will say there's, you can get great bottles from a lot of places. Like it's really cool to see, for me at least, I've been really cool to see like incredible sparkling wines coming out of Tasmania. Um, it's great to, there's a very wide world of wine. Um, and while, you know, it's, it's always cool to get to like, my gosh, drink Burgundy, don't get me wrong. It's really exciting to also be like, wow, this is a stellar bottle that I am drinking from Lebanon right now. Like I get really excited about that. But to be precise, you said Portugal because that's. Important. I led with Portugal. <laughs> Let's just. I'll let the other parts in Portugal. Can you describe any prejudice you've experienced in this industry as a woman? Oh my goodness! How much time do we have? Sorry, uh, I go from one <laughs> spectrum to the other. Sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah. Let's keep. Yeah, we'll we'll keep it going. Um, yes. No, I definitely have experienced um, prejudice. As someone who is a woman, who is female identifying, um, there are a lot of expectations, I think, about who is quote unquote serious. Um, and I find this in um, media in general. I think in journalism in general, um, I started working in journalism and travel. And I remember thinking there were like four hetero white men who got to write features. And then there were like 12 hetero white women who would be assigned like listicles and roundups. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but it felt very prescriptive and very limited. Um, and in, in media now, you know, it's, it's different, obviously. Um, but I, I do still find that there's a lot of gendered and racial perspectives that are like assumed onto people of what someone could write about, what someone could handle. Um, and like food media right now is really having a, a very fascinating reckoning on this front. Um, I, I almost used air quotes, even though no one can see me um, being like, people are overusing the word reckoning, but I think it's real. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's really overdue. Um, and it's, it's difficult, I think, for a lot of folks in the business as a result, but it is a very good, you know, sometimes you, sometimes pain can be good. Good. Um, and so I, I've definitely had folks think that I am less serious. I think some of it is also personality um, in addition to gender. But I just always hesitate to dwell on the um, discrimination I faced because I think it is magnified and multiplied for people of color, for non-binary folks. And as a cis white female, I have certainly faced discrimination, but I I see it intersectionally, you know, I, I see it as being a much bigger problem than just the ones I faced. What changes do you hope to see in regards to women in the wine industry in the next 10 years? Oh, more intersectionality. Um, I, I see a lot of movement behind women in wine and it's great. It is necessary, um, but I'd also like those same communities, those same groups, um, the same funding and all of all of that energy to expand beyond women um, to anyone who's marginalized. Which cliches would you like to banish from the wine world forever? <laughs> Gosh, these, I love these questions. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think I would like to get rid of the idea that natural wine is healthier for you. Um, booze is always a toxin. I'm really sorry to break that, that terrible news to everyone. Um, Breaking news, everybody. Yeah. yeah. 
exactly. Breaking. Um, exactly. Um, yeah. So I think that's something that's a that's a more recent um, sort of cliche that's come about. I would also say just the idea that you have to be very wealthy. Um, the idea that the only people who should be collecting wine should have a ton of money in the bank. Um, there's a fairly high economic price to entry for wine. I look at it compared to beer where like the best beer in the world is like $30. You know, it's like a very yeah. different price point. But I do think at the same time, there's values to be having. Again, Portuguese wine, of excellent value in the US. Quality for price point is amazing. Um, and so I just, I think that is probably for me, that's one of the bigger ones is just kind of getting rid of the, the economic reputation that wine has. You keep mentioning Portugal. My invoice is just going to be that amount. Even if you keep bringing Portugal, I'm sorry, Emily, I'm not going to raise the, the amount. The food scene has been shifting and focusing into a more sustainable approach from customers and farmers. How does that translate into the wine business? It's a really exciting thing. Um, you know, I, I often think that because we as consumers attach these very sophisticated concepts to wine, um, it's easy to forget it's an agricultural product for some people. Sorry, I misrepresented that. It's easy for some people to forget it's an agricultural product. Yeah. Um, um, and so that is what's, what's very compelling right now is to see the ways that climate change is playing out across um, the globe and certainly across all agricultural communities. And so the wine world is not even a little bit removed from that. Um, winemakers are changing vinification practices in real time because of that issue. So it's a, it's, it's a really terrifying time, but it's a really great thing to see these innovations that are happening in terms of, you know, like, my gosh, carbon releasing and like the wine world is so global that carbon emissions are a huge problem. Um, and so just seeing the ways that different companies, individuals and entire regions are trying to create new certifications um, to protect um and i mean i don't know if protect preserve i guess mm -hmm. is probably the right word that's it's a it's a bad thing that i think has a lot of potential you know what i mean like it's not i would never be like it's a great thing um but it's a it's a really scary time but i i'm actually very encouraged to see how much time and effort and honestly capital is being put behind it you are cooking with wine <laughs> yes or no for use good wine to cook Depends on like, you know, can I spare it? <laughs> yeah, like if money is no object, my gosh, yes. Use the best wine you can, sure. I actually, no, not the best wine. I would never pour something that is extremely valuable to me, either economically or emotionally into a stew. I just, I don't recommend it. Don't use spoiled wine. You know, that's something do I people, personally... Do people do that? <laughs> I know I've been tempted to be like, this has been open for a little too long. I don't really want to drink it. Maybe I could cook with it. The answer is no. Um, yeah, if money is no object, sure, use a nicer bottle. But I would never use my nicest to, to cook because you're going to lose a lot of the nuance. So, Emily, let's imagine you, are, you go to a desert island. They just ship you there, basically. You just stay in a desert island. You can have your chateau there. That part is optional. What do you take with you, a red, white, or rosé? I think I take a white and can I take a sparkling? No, I mean, Emily, only one. <laughs> the question was very specific. I know I'm Portuguese, but you can only take one red, white, or rose. I'm sorry. White. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. What was your first memory of taste? 
general taste, right? Not general taste. Yeah, okay. not, not not wine. I mean, it can be wine, but I like you said, it was only 21, like you said, right? To exactly. So let's go for food. The first time I did also air quotes. Uh, first memory of taste for you. Um, when I was growing up, my mother, who is an exceptional cook, um, my mother would make a roast chicken stuffed with lemons and garlic. It is something that to this day, I smell it. The taste of lemons that have been roasted inside of poultry is so incredible. And like, I smell that citrusy smell with the poultry and it is very evocative to me. It smells like childhood. Most underrated ingredient. Time. <laughs> I know time is used in a lot of things, but so many folks I know think that time doesn't taste like anything. And I think of it almost like salt. I mean, salt has a strong taste, but it's like, it's not really about what it tastes like. It's what it does to me, to the mm -hmm. overall, the end result. Overrated ingredient. Ramps. ramps. I like ramps. I love them. I love them. But the the hype machine that surrounds ramps is wild. Um, I think ramps are delicious, but I think a lot of green onions are delicious. Best breakfast you can have? <sighs> breakfast taco. Tex-Mex breakfast taco. I was actually, before I, I was going to say, in the, in the chateau, which breakfast? You, but, <laughs> and then you said breakfast tacos. I don't think those two go together. Okay. Which wine would you pair with that? Or which, you know, can be a sparkling wine. Would you, would you do it or no? I think rosé is good with the breakfast taco. A really light, acidic rosé with like a hearty breakfast taco. Good. What is this, the strangest combination people might do it that you just cannot accept? And this one can be food-wise pairing or even pairing wine with food that you just like know. I once was at someone's house and he was like, I know it was like a friend of a friend. And he was like, Emily, I know you're into food. And so you'll get this. And I felt like already there was so much pressure on the situation. And he made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with a fried egg on it. And it's actually not crazy conceptually like those are, but there was just something texturally so unpleasant about a fried egg with jam and peanut butter for me i will eat anything and i mean i think i choked out two bites so the name of the podcast is turning chickens and breaking dishes those are two portuguese phrases turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that exceeded all expectations have you been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes I love the expressions, first of all. I, as someone who asks a lot of questions for a living, like in, when I'm interviewing folks, Next I absolutely- time you should ask that. Hey, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Um, I kind of aim to be forever doing both. I feel like I'm, I'm always trying to keep learning and always trying to keep, you know, Whatever my goal is, it's my goal. And then I hope to have a new goal. You know, I never want to be someone who I've, I've broken my dishes and now I'm just going to chill. You know, I, just, I always aim to be doing both simultaneously, kind of forever. This part of the podcast, I always tell my guests to sell their fish. So in Portugal, if someone tells you to sell your fish, that means you talk about yourself. Where people can find you, well, you know, what's in the future for you, the work with the magazine, just say, all, you know, you can talk about all of this. 
Sure. Um, thank you for the chance to sell my fish. Um, I am on Twitter as Emily Saladino. I am on Instagram as Emily J Saladino because there's another Emily Saladino out there. Um, and on Wine Enthusiast, the, the website is winemag.com and the magazine that comes out monthly and is Wine Enthusiast. Um, my big goals there are to continue to amplify all sorts of different voices within beverage. Um, so we're always looking for new writers. If you are a writer or if you're someone who's just always thought maybe you should be a writer, please contact me. It is esaladino at wineenthusiast.net. It's a really long, complicated email address, but it's on my Twitter page if this is here. I hope to hear from you. And especially if you live in a chateau, Emily will give you a job right away. Just yeah, in case. I look forward to being hosted in your chateau. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Emily, this was a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the pod. And, you know, go try to look for that chateau. Drink more Portuguese wine. It's not just me saying, because I know it's delicious. And thank you very much for your time. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Did you like that episode? Raise your hand. Me too. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. I'm so grateful for all the messages and comments that you have left. And if you haven't done that, don't forget also to subscribe to the podcast, share, tell your friends all about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. You can follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes, on the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes, and you can also send me an email to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Don't forget I release an episode every Tuesday and Friday of each week, so stay tuned all the time. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Have an amazing day. Adeus.